Father God, would you teach us this morning as we come again to your word and as we open ourselves up and listen and give ourselves to you during this time, would you please be our teacher? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series looking at a little book in the New Testament called James. James, of course, was the brother of Jesus. Uh, we spent some weeks looking at earlier chapters of this book. Then we took a three-week hiatus in order to talk about kind of what matters to us most around here, uh, our vision, our mission. Now we're coming back to this little book, the book of James. And I want to start with a preface about the kind of conversation that James wants to have with us this morning. Uh, one of the things that I've learned just being married is that there are two basic kinds of conversation. Uh, there are feelings conversations, and then there are problem-solving conversations, and these are actually quite different. Sometimes your spouse might want to just share their feelings uh, without being given advice about how to fix something. Anybody at all relating to this? Yeah. For example, you ask, hey, how was your day, honey? And, and if they had a hard day, they will just tell you about their stresses. They will tell you about the things that were conflicts for them or the difficulties that they encountered. And they really just want you to listen, just to be there for moral support and encouragement. They're not asking you to problem solve and fix the issue for them. They just want a little understanding and a little compassion. They want to hear you say, oh, man. That must be hard, or that must have been awful, or I feel bad for you, but I love you, and you're doing a good job. I'm with you. Um, that's really what they want to hear. Not, oh, sounds like what you should do is. Yeah. And knowing the difference between these two kinds of conversations can save your marriage, okay? <laughs> Feelings conversations, problem-solving conversations. Uh, the text we're looking at today in James is not a feelings conversation. It is a problem-solving conversation. The text that we're looking at, uh, in this text that we're looking at, James is going to be very direct. He's going to be very practical. Uh, he's going to say things that might even feel kind of harsh, uh, kind of offensive on the surface. But we need to hang with James and let him take us where we need to go. He does this because he's interested in helping us solve a big problem, a really big problem in our lives. And uh, that's actually good news because the truth is we all bring into church every time we gather, every Sunday, a lot of problems, things that we are wrestling with. Some of us right now this morning uh, are struggling with problems at work. Career kinds of problems, maybe no work at all. Some of us are struggling with problems in a relationship with somebody that we really love, but we're having difficulties in that relationship. Some of us uh, are struggling with problems that have to do with financial matters, debt or you know income, not meeting expenses, kinds of things. Uh, problems having to do with maybe even an addiction. Uh, a habit, a pattern of behavior that's very, very destructive in our lives, uh, problems with children. We have all kinds of problems. Maybe you've come to church this weekend just trying to avoid your problems. Or you'd like to not think about them. Well, you have a problem with me now because I'm talking about problems. So it just kind of works this way. James is writing to a community that's wrestling with many different kinds of problems. We've looked at some of them already. In weeks past, you know, there were problems with anger that we noted, problems uh, that the church 
churches that James was writing to, they were ignoring the poor. Um, there were preferential treatment problems going on in these churches. Some people were getting special treatment. Others were getting overlooked. There's greed. There's hypocrisy going on in this church. In the text that we're looking at this morning, James is going to confront them about conflicts and divisions that are going on in the church. And he's going to do kind of a deep dive into the causes of those conflicts. And he doesn't hesitate to make some rather scathing observations about his readers, uh, things that actually, if he was writing today, he would be writing to us, I think, if we're going to be really honest. Uh, he boldly tells them, you have a bigger problem than your current problems. Um, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what the challenges, no matter what you're facing, you actually have a bigger problem than your current problem, is what he's going to tell them. And he starts off with this question. This is in chapter 4. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? That's his question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? If you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know that one of the constant problems in these early churches is conflict. It's division. Rival factions would form around different teachers, or they would form around different views of Jesus or different interpretations of Scripture. Thank God nothing like that happens today, right? But uh, in this case, because James was the most significant leader in the early church, he was the head of the church there in Jerusalem, uh, in fact, he, uh, he actually knows what these issues are. He knows what people are quarreling about. He knows the conflicts. And uh, he, uh, he would have asked this question kind of rhetorically of them, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Because, again, he would have known exactly what's going on, knowing the issues, knowing both sides or all sides of the particular debate. Uh, he would have been able to speak into it. In fact, he could have probably solved the fight just by how he spoke into their quarrels. If they were fighting about what Jesus had taught, if they were fighting about something Jesus had said or something Jesus had, did, had done, James was the brother of Jesus. And he could have spoken into that situation or those quarrels with authority. Uh, if they were fighting about whether Jesus was truly raised from the dead, which is one thing the early church did fight about, did debate about, at least some of them, he could speak into that situation with authority because after all, he was one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but James doesn't do that. Interestingly enough, he, he doesn't do that. As you're about to see, James doesn't even seem to be that interested in what they are fighting about. He doesn't say, uh, tell me, tell me, what, what's your opinion? What's your opinion? What's your side of the debate? What's your side of the debate? He doesn't ask for any more details. Instead, he does this kind of interesting thing. He answers his own question with another question. This is what he says. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? If you've ever been with someone who answers their question with another question, you know they're not really asking a question. They're actually just making a point. Uh, oh, oh, you got a ticket, first question. Second question, were you not watching your speed? They're making a point. Uh, question, oh, don't you remember my parents are coming for dinner tonight? Second question, did you forget again to put that on your calendar? They're not asking a question. They're making a point. Uh, 
You see, the second question does exactly that. You weren't watching your speed. That's the point. You forgot again to put it on your calendar. That's the point. And just an aside, conversations like this are not feeling conversations. They're problem-solving conversations. You don't say, oh, honey, I, I see how you're feeling about the ticket that I got. Uh, I'm with you. I'm, I'm here for you. No, no. You say, okay, I'll slow down. You know, you say, I'll get better at putting things on my calendar and try not to forget that. James answers his own question with another question. Uh, in other words, he's making a point. He is saying your conflicts are coming from desires that battle within you. Your fights are not just about the circumstances uh, that you're facing out there. They're about something that's happening inside you. Uh, you're not quarreling just because someone has offended you or just because there's some difference between you and this other person. James is saying there's something else going on in you that you need to look at. In other words, your problem isn't just out there. It's actually in here. This is where James is going. He is refocusing his reader's attention from their circumstances to their innermost life. He's basically saying, what if that current issue that you face, that thing that you identify as a problem, what if it's not just about stuff out there? What if it's revealing something about your own heart, your own soul? He's saying, you might just be a part of this big problem. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And you've got to ask, well, what desires, James, are you talking about? And he says, you desire but do not have, and so you kill. Well, that's an interesting thing to write to a church. Uh, there are some scholars that tell us that this might not be just hyperbole. It might not be just a, a metaphorical reference to, you know, anger in them or frustration in them. There may well have been actual violence in the church, especially where you had powerful people in the church. Remember, this was already a problem amongst the groups that James was talking to, powerful people and not so powerful people. Where you have powerful people, important people dealing with people who aren't like masters and slaves, which was often the case in a church, uh, there were likely people actually so angry they were resorting to physical violence, maybe even murder. We don't know. Can you imagine, though, you're in a church where something like this has happened? Hey, we gotta have a got to have an elders meeting because Bill is killing people again, and, you know, we need to talk to him about that. <laughs> so, but it, James goes on. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and fight. You know, there are these appetites, unmet desires, wants that are driving your life, and you may not know it, James says. Uh, this is kind of controversial, too, because in our day, there's this common belief that our actions are driven by what people say to us or uh, by what people do around us or by what happens to me or by whatever circumstances I happen to be processing. In other words, what's out there? And this is why people say things like, you make me so angry. Or, you know, that person really brings out the worst in me. Or I would never have said or never done that if, if they hadn't pushed me to this, you see. James is challenging that kind of thinking. He's saying the reason you fight, the reason you have conflict, 
is because there are these, these desires in you. And you envy. And you covet. There are things you want that you don't have. And this runs so deeply in us that it's part of our DNA. And we hardly even recognize this in ourselves. Take a look at this video for a moment. brother there gets an iPad and the other brother doesn't. And it's funny to see this in, in children, uh, but it's sad when you realize we don't ever actually grow out of that behavior. <laughs> we really do not. We just get a little better at masking it and hiding it. Somebody gets something you want, so they got the promotion, but you probably think you deserved it and you don't fall down on the floor in the office, you know, to show your disgust. <laughs> But what begins is desire for something that you deeply want when you don't get it. Well, it, it quickly becomes coveting, becomes envy, maybe anger as well. Someone else has something I want. Someone else has a barrier to my happiness, I come to believe. James is telling us that our conflict isn't just about iPads. It's about something going on inside me, something deep down that I think I need, that I I know I want and I've got to have it. And my ugly actions are flowing out of that part of my heart, that part of my soul. And this happens in all of us. Really, nobody gets a pass on this. Sometimes it expresses itself a little different based on personality, but this thing, this, this uh, dynamic happens in all of us. I think of uh, Isaac uh, envying and coveting Esau's inheritance. He's just got to have it right. God had even said that uh, he was going to get the inheritance, but he's got to get it for himself. What does he do? do? Well, he steals it. That's what Isaac does. Causes all kinds of problems in the family. Uh, I think of Jacob's wife, Rachel, envying and coveting Leah's children. She's not able to have any, and she wants to have children. So what does she do? Well, she does what any you know, thoughtful wife would do. She has Jacob, her husband, sleep with her maidservant and uh, produce more kids. And that causes all kinds of problems. I think of Joseph's brothers envying his status with their father. You know, he's uh, their dad's favorite. And so what do they do? Well, they do what siblings often do. They kidnap their brother. They sell him into slavery, you know, and, and uh, so on. I think of David coveting another man's wife, Bathsheba. And so uh, he takes her into his harem. She becomes pregnant, and now he's got a problem. And what does he do? Well, to get rid of Bathsheba's husband, he, he has Uriah murdered. Um, the point is this, James was deeply aware that people weren't fighting in the early church just because they had theological differences or 
sets of questions, just because they preferred different teachers, or just because they had different social or economic standings, or just because one person was right and the other person was wrong. This was not really the reason for their conflict and their fighting. They were fighting because they wanted to feel maybe loved, maybe respected, or they wanted uh, or craved power, or they wanted influence, or they needed to be right, or they had to be in control. They wanted something they weren't getting. They fought because their hearts were filled with longing. So they had desires for things they wanted, but they did not get. And the truth is, we too have to look for things like this in our own heart. I find this stuff in myself all the time. Uh, Sometimes when I feel frustrated with another person, if I'm honest, it's not just what they did or what they didn't do. It's because they have something that I don't have. And I really long for that something. Uh, maybe they're more talented than me. Maybe they've been more successful than I am. Uh, James is saying, you have this desire problem in you. You've identified certain things you think you've got to have to experience happiness or joy or well-being. And so you have envy issues and you need to identify the envy issues in you and own them. Now, here's the thing be great if we could just stop our discussion right here but James doesn't stop here he dives still deeper why do we have this problem envy coveting uh, wanting things that we don't have he says you do not have because you do not ask God and when you ask you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures you don't have Because you don't ask God. Interesting. Why don't you ask God? Well, you know, I'm too busy to ask God. Why don't you ask God? Well, you know, uh, I don't want to involve God in this situation. Or uh, I don't believe that he can or will do anything. So I'll just leave God out of this situation. Or when I do bring God into this current situation, uh, I actually try to involve God. I ask God to do something uh, really It's about getting what I want, getting him to do for me the will of Dwayne, you see. And James says, you ask, you don't get what you are asking for, but you ask that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's all about me getting, just getting what I want. It's the same kind of language Jesus uses when he tells the story of the two sons, the prodigal son and the elder brother. One goes to the father, the prodigal son, asks for his share of the inheritance. Why? So he can go out and spend it all on himself. You see, this isn't just, again, a feelings conversation. This is actually a problem-solving conversation. James says the problem isn't just conflict. It's not just that you have unmet desires. The problem is your life is just about you. Now we're at a deeper level. You getting what you want, you getting that when you want it, you doing what you want just the way you want to do it. And although we profess belief in God, although we attend church, we really want sometimes to just use God. We only love God to the degree that God will give us what we really love. And if we're brave enough to admit it, and you kind of have to be brave to admit this, We only want to be faithful to God to the degree that God is faithful to get us what we think we really want. 
And James is really prying now, (laughs) uncomfortably so. He's prying into our lives. God, if you help me be successful, I'll be faithful to you. God, if you give me this relationship that I want so much, I'll be faithful to you. God, if you give me security, if you give me comfort, then I'll be faithful to you. And I've thought of those kinds of things before. Have you? You see, at the center of my life, there is this problem. It's a, it's a really big problem. And the problem is me. It's amazing what James is doing here. It's like peeling away the, the layers of an onion. Yes, we have conflict. That's a problem. Yes, there's envy and desire. That too is a problem. But deeper down, there's a deeper issue. And that is my life is too much just about me. My joy, my comfort, my preferences, my timing, my stuff, my glory. And James is getting personal now. And I wish he would stop peeling away layers, but he peels away another one. It gets worse. He says, you adulterous people. Wow. Okay. Wow. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What is James driving at here? What is he saying? He talks about friendship with the world. There have been some Christians at some times who have understood that phrase, I would say, in kind of a surfacey fashion. Uh, understanding James to be referring to things like, you know, drinking, smoking, associating with bad people or the wrong people, going to movies, dancing, doing things that people of the world would do, you see. But honestly, understood that way, I think you're missing James' whole point. James' phrase here, friendship with the world, is about something much more important, much deeper than surfacey kinds of, you know, do this, don't do that issues. It's actually about what matters most in your life. It's about what you give your allegiance and your trust to. It's about your your core concern, if you will, not peripheral concerns. We all have peripheral concerns every day. You know, you got day-to-day chores, things you've got to do, to-do lists, shopping lists. And beneath that, we have deeper, more primary concerns, concerns about our family, concerns about a spouse if you're married, concerns about, you know, doing well at school, concerns about children if you have them, concerns about friendships, concerns about personal health. These are all very important, legitimate concerns. But even beneath those concerns, there's yet a bigger concern. And that's the concern you have at the very core of your being. This is the the thing at the very center of a person's life. This is what matters most to you. This is what affects and guides everything you do, every decision you make. It It affects all other concerns of your life. And what James is saying is you can only have one thing in that core concern level. So often, if I'm being honest for me, I mean, I I follow Jesus, so I want to make God my concern and something else. Uh, I want my core concern to be God and my success, or God and my comfort, God and my security, God and my family. 
And James is saying, yeah, that's a problem. Those, that's, a, that's a legitimate concern, some of those things. But th- those things don't belong in your core concern. You, you can't do that. Not with this matter of your core concern. That's like saying to your spouse, I love you, honey. And I'm, I'm going to love the man or woman at work too. That, that's called adultery. And when you try to make your core concern in life be God and something or someone else, that's spiritual adultery. And that's why James says, you adulterous people. That's where that language comes from. Don't you know, he says, that friendship with the world means enmity against God. He is saying only one thing can actually be your core concern or should be your core concern. Only one thing, and obviously that needs to be God. But our temptation is always to make it God and something else. God and, you know, this relationship that I need. God and my reputation. God and vocational success. God and comfort and security. God and, you know, you fill in the blank for you. And here's what's interesting. None of these things are necessarily bad, as I said a moment ago. They may well be legitimate concerns, but they can't be your core concern. They're not the things you build your life upon. They, they, they cannot be what matters most to you. And when that happens, those good things become not so good things. They actually become what the Bible calls an idol. Idols are anything that you place in the center of your life that is a God substitute. Idols are anything that you think you've just got to have. I've got to have this person's love. I've got to have this person's respect. I've got to have obedient children. I've got to have a certain amount of money. I've got to have order in my life. I've got to have comfort in my life. Anything you think you can't live without, anything that matters more to you than anything else, that is an idol. That is a God substitute. And that's what James is going after. James is pointing out that beneath our conflict, beneath our coveting and our envy, beneath even our problem of me is the problem that God is not really at the core, the center of my life. God is not what matters most to me. And as you can see, this is not a feelings conversation. This is a problem-solving conversation, and this is a significant problem, one that makes all other problems in my life, worse, in fact. And uh, I don't know how to fix this problem. Um, because as James has so skillfully pointed out, I'm my own biggest problem. So how do I fix this? What do I do? Uh, I don't have just a conflict or quarreling problem. I don't have just an envy or coveting problem. I have a serious heart problem. I have uh, a bigger problem than just controlling my desires. I have an even bigger problem than the problem of me. You see, I don't seem to be able to keep God at the core concern of my life. And uh, you know that I'm not the only one with this problem. It's so interesting to me, the Apostle Paul, who was probably inarguably uh, the most influential, maybe the most significant individual in, the, uh, in that time of the early church, uh, he confesses that he had this same problem. He writes about his problem this way. 
familiar words to many of you. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, I want to do God's will. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I know what God says is true, and I really want what God wants. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. You see, this is all going on inside of Paul. It's a battle. It's a war. Uh, And this is the perhaps greatest leader in the early church openly confessing This sin makes me feel a little better. But then he says this. He says, what a wretched man I am. Because he knows this is true. He knows that this struggle that James is talking about is very real and very present in his life. And so he asked the question, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's asking, who can solve my biggest problem? And then he tells us, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Totally surprised you, didn't I? You had no idea I was going there. You see, you and I, we have a problem beneath our problems. And it's a significant problem at our core. And it's a problem that you and I cannot solve. You see, your problem is you. My problem is me. And the sin that is in us. And Paul makes it very clear, who can solve this problem? Only one individual can solve this problem, and that is Jesus. And I love how James puts this. He has basically given us a verdict, right? He said, you are an adulterous people. That's you, and that's me. That's the verdict. That's who we are. We are at odds with God. So how does Jesus... How does God respond to our adultery? Let me ask you, how would you respond to a person's unfaithfulness to you? Keep that in mind. How does God, how does Jesus respond to our adultery? Take a look at this. He says, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? This is so interesting to me. God desires deep faithful relationship with us. There's an appropriate, righteous jealousy on God's part. He longs for, jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. The problem is we don't long for that. The problem is we want God and something else perhaps. So what does God do? Here it is. Here's what he does. It says, but he gives us more grace. And that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God because he gives us more grace. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So any of those outside forces that are causing pride, resist those things. The devil chiefly among them, resist those things. Turn to God, submit yourself to God and God will be your answer. Friends, this is a big deal. James has been laying it on pretty thick up to this point. He says, we have conflicts and quarrels because of desires that are within us. And so we envy and we covet. And if we involve God at all, uh, it's just to use him to get what we want. And underneath all of this, we are at odds with God, says James. We are adulterers. We are idolaters. We want God and something else. So what does God do? Well, God gives us more grace. 
And that, that's a huge wow moment. A few weeks ago, we talked about what is worship. Worship is about acknowledging the wow of who God is and embracing the grace that God gives us, the mercies that are new every morning. God gives us more grace. That's actually the only answer to our problem. Grace, another chance after a long list of second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. Grace, the power of God to do what you and I simply cannot do for ourselves. Grace, forgiveness and freedom from shame and guilt that we cannot escape from on our own. Now, here's my question as I read this. I'm thinking, wow, James, what a journey you're on here with us. You're you're really hammering us with this, you adulterous people. How does James know this? Did he read it in a theological manual somewhere? No. No, not at all. You see, this is what James experienced. James experienced hundreds, if maybe not thousands, of times growing up with his brother, Jesus. Grace upon grace upon grace. If I read my New Testament correctly, and there's some room here for interpretation, uh, there was one point in time when James would have been among the other, with the other members of his family, all of them seriously doubting the sanity of Jesus. You know, is Jesus insane? He's, he's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, proclaiming himself to be God. We're, all, we're pretty sure he's nuts. That's what they all thought. James was in that group with his family. And what did Jesus do for James and the other members of his family? Well, it was grace upon grace upon grace, showed them more grace. And I'm sure growing up, brothers, you know, brothers, going at it. How did Jesus handle James through all of those moments and in all of those times? Grace, grace. You see, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus died, so that he could offer us grace to anyone who would humble themselves and receive it. That's James. This is James' life experience with his brother Jesus. And he's sharing it with us. And he's saying, you've got to believe in my brother. You simply, how you, there's nobody like him. He's the God-man. And he gives us grace. And so, you know, if you have been the atheist and not even sure there is a God or not, not sure about Jesus and what have you, well, you know, God is in pursuit of you. God is trying to woo you into a relationship because he is, he is jealous for relationship with you. And, and so here's grace for you, the one who denies the very presence, existence of God himself slash Jesus. Well, grace for you. If you've been a skeptic, well, here in Jesus is grace for you. If you've been a a poor spouse, anybody want to volunteer their spouses? Has your spouse been poor? Yeah. If you've been a poor parent, I don't know a parent that at times just doesn't answer that call and feel like, oh, yeah, man, I've not been a good parent. If you've been a lousy boss or an lousy employee or a lousy student or whatever, well, you see, here's grace for you in Jesus. 
You won't find it anywhere else. If you've hurt someone, if you've been unfaithful in your marriage, if your whole life has just been about you, well, here's grace for you in Jesus. I'm blown away by what Jesus offers us. Grace to people who do not deserve it. You see how this this is not a feelings conversation. It's a problem-solving conversation. But if this doesn't affect your feelings, well, I don't know what will. You need Jesus to solve your problem, a problem you cannot solve yourself. And so James makes it clear, there's only one way, there's only one posture, there's only one place to receive grace, and that is a place of humility. Humility is all about open honesty, acknowledging who you really are. You have to humble yourself to receive this grace. He says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor, blessing to the humble. This has always been true. God stands against those who would say, I got this. I don't need you, God. I don't even believe in you, God. I am fine by myself. I can manage my own life. I can manage my own problems and difficulties. I can manage me. Well, good luck with that. I've never met a person who could manage me, meaning you. I need help. And God wants to help those who humble themselves. So here's the thing. Timer's going off. It's telling me I'm done, so... So I invite you to do one of two things this morning, one of two. If you already follow Jesus, this ought to, I hope this is creating some measure of a wow moment for you, a worshipful moment for you. Nobody loves you like Jesus loves you. And you should be in a place where you want to acknowledge his goodness in the form of grace and where you want to embrace him and have him embrace you and where your trust in him goes deeper and your love for him grows exponentially. And here's the thing, all of that leads to this, leads to obedience. You know, I can feel shame and guilt for my lack of obedience sometimes and I I really do feel those things, but that feeling doesn't often help me be obedient. Tell you what does help me be obedient when I am overwhelmed by his grace to me. That changes something in me. That changes my heart. That, uh, that affects me deeply. And so that's one of the things you could do. If you already follow Jesus, let his grace change you. Reach out to him. Ask him to keep making the change at the core that needs to happen so that you can walk with him, so that you can trust him more, so that you can move into deeper places of obedience. And then the other thing that you can do is you can, if you don't follow Jesus already, you can have a conversation with him about this. Remember, he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. He longs for relationship with you. 
Because you were made to be like him. You were made to relate to him. You're made to have relationship with your maker, with God, with Jesus. And Jesus is here and Jesus is listening. There is grace to be experienced. You see, Jesus came to solve the biggest problems of your life and mine. The problem of sin. And if you want to follow him, it's, it's, it's very simple. You, you just tell him that. Um, you can pray a prayer like this. Jesus, you know, I have a problem and it's me. My broken, sinful nature is my biggest problem. Would you please forgive me? Would you please help me change? I want to give my life to you. I want to follow you. I need, I desperately need your grace. I can tell you this, that is a prayer that Jesus will always, 100% of the time, answer. It's a humble cry for grace and forgiveness. If you pray a prayer like that, you you enter into a new relationship, spiritual relationship that is spiritually transforming. It's life transforming. And I would encourage you, if you pray a prayer like that, let me know. Take the card in front of you and just, hey, I prayed this morning to follow Jesus and let us help you grow spiritually in him. That's the second thing you can do. And really all of this, All of this amounts to one great big wow or worshipful moment. Either someone's life is changing because of a commitment that they make this morning or our lives, those of us who already follow Jesus, continue to change because we get clearer focus on just what my problem is and who's my solution. Are you with me? Amen. Okay. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful to you that you left the glory of heaven. You became a human being. You humbled yourself to the point of a servant, to the point of dying on a cross, and you were buried but came back out of that tomb. And Father, you raised Jesus to the highest of heights of heaven, and you glorify him today so that we might know him, so that we might follow him, so that our greatest problem of me, of sin, has a solution in him. Father, would you help us to grow in him? Would you help anyone here this morning who might not know you, Jesus, to meet you, to put their faith in you, to follow you? Would you help us all, Father, to continue to find grace, the grace of Jesus? We pray this in his name, amen.